Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Today I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Amanda Semenoff, but we were just giggling in our pre-recording. Her her name is spelled semen off. And so I just went straight to the gutter, obviously. Amanda, <laughs> Amanda awesome. how are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Good. And this is one of those fun interviews where I'm going in kind of blind and I love those because I just roll with it. I, I do not know what to expect any more than anybody else. And sometimes it's nice to have an outline and sometimes it's nice to wing it. And today we're winging it. So Amanda, tell me, where are you in the country, in the world? I am on the left coast of Canada, just outside of Vancouver, BC. So I grew up in Vermont, over by Montreal and Quebec, and drove cross country and up British Columbia and everything to Alaska. And I've driven that Alcan Highway area several times. Oh, lovely. Yeah, so I I hear your accent. Actually, it's beautiful and cold. It's not that cold today. The snow is melting. We're probably two more days to no more snow on the ground. Oh my gosh. We're like one here in Reno and I, <laughs> I'm not a winter person. So I don't know how I grew up in the East Coast and lived in Alaska and traveled through uh, British Columbia. And, but I, you know, who knows? Okay. So I'm going to ask you the year you were born. 1979. That just gives people kind of an idea of age. I think we put, uh, I like to put us in certain boxes a little bit and then get yourself out of the box. But I heard your Canadian accent. And so I was pretty sure, (laughs) I was pretty sure we were Canadian. So tell me, we're talking about your struggle, which I know zero about, or almost zero, maybe point something. So tell me what led up to the struggle that you had. So when I was in university, fourth year doing an economics degree, I would do like international microfinance. I was really into that kind of stuff and I got really, really sick. And so I'm losing three pounds a week. I'm throwing up everybody, everything I eat and no one knows what's wrong. And suddenly I go from being this like straight A, really driven student to I'm failing all of my courses required to graduate. I cannot travel and I'm seeing the future that I had mapped out dissolve in front of my eyes. And as far as we know, I'm dying because they don't know what's wrong and they can't stop it. And so from there... Uh, slowly figuring it out, finding doctors that believe me. No, it's not an eating disorder. No, I'm not just pregnant. No, I'm not crazy, right? Being this like early 20s female trying to like find people to take my symptoms seriously. It's becoming to the point where they're starting to because, you know, I need to be, I leave in the hospital instead of being home. Um, and just this really crazy space and, and moving through that. And it took two years to get a diagnosis. And my school was half amazing and half really, really um, just didn't know what to do, right? I had these professors being like, if you hand anything in, we will let you pass this course so you can just be done. But that's not actually useful for a future, right? Like getting a, you pass this course, therefore you can graduate doesn't actually really matter for doing like the things that I had wanted to do. And so this sort of massive recalibration of everything I could do and everything I sort of expected, like there was this point I remember where it was kind of the sort of the, the lowest of the low point is this, like, I have this 2000 word essay I need to finish. And it's the only requirement I have, and I can't figure out how to get enough energy to write a full sentence and I'm thirsty, and I'm not strong enough to open a bottle of water. Wow. 
And no real health issues leading up to this growing well, nobody, up. Nobody in my family believed it was me and not my brother because he was the one that would get sick when we were kids. So he would get strep throat and I wouldn't. He would get the right. flu and I wouldn't. And so after about a year and a half, I finally got a diagnosis. And it's Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune digestive disorder. And with that comes a, a set of treatments that are, well, some of them work really well and some of them don't. Um, and with that also came the desperation by everybody in my family to try every crazy new age, ridiculous thing out there, some of which were helpful and most of which are a really, really good way to make people and their money part ways, right? Like, so... <laughs> Like every, every snake oil salesman in the world showed up to my mother's door with a, this will save your child kind of a story. And, uh, and I just remember like watching like my dad and kind of myself trying to be like, don't give them money. Don't give them money. Don't give them money. And yet at the same time, wanting to try all of those things. Well, yeah, because I mean, it may work somewhere in some other, there may be some Aboriginal tribe that we don't know about that has some miraculous, right? I mean, that's my whole thought process. There's got to be some way to make whatever this is better. And of course, what's the worst case? It's not going to help and you can rule it out. So I totally well, if, get that. If that was the worst case, a lot of the stuff that's being peddled is actually harmful. Okay. <clears throat> or it will interfere with medications or it's kind of this like desperate hope that you can do something without side effects that'll make something better and in the acute space like when you're really sick like that's just like that stuff isn't often where you find real healing it's in the space between like the med the sort of the western medical system is really good at getting us from like nearly dead to kind of kind of not okay it's that last step that they're not very good at to go from kind of yeah. not okay to like actually like functionally living a life. And that's the piece where, you know, a lot of the yoga, massage, like those kinds of pieces can be incredibly valuable. Your sort of personal diet, figuring stuff out. But, you know, of the things people kind of pushed at me, there was a really small set of things that were very valuable where I'm like, I can't believe somebody found this thing for me. It's the most amazing thing ever. It's $20 in a bottle, but I'd pay a thousand for it. It's the right. greatest thing ever. Right. And, but that set of things was really, really small. And the majority of things were not great or even like would interfere with the medications that I had that were working. And that's not good. You're right. That is definitely, right? if the worst case scenario was it doesn't work, then who cares? Except money. <laughs> right. And you're right? on IV therapy. All kinds of stuff. So I, mean, I, I took you, some crazy medications that probably saved my life. I took other crazy medications that probably caused more problems than they sorted out. Because a lot of like an autoimmune disorder or anything else is as, as much trial and error for the doctors mm -hmm. as it is for the patients. So they'd put you on a medication and they would just be hoping, right? Oh, that it geez. works. And so you spend a lot of time in that space, but uh, one of the really amazing, like there's a lot of really incredible things that came out of it. Like I always laugh that I did my toxic friend purge in my early twenties instead of in my thirties <laughs> when I had kids, um, because you sort of, you very quickly realize who in your life are people that are amazing and matter and who in your life are just like sucking up your oxygen and dragging you back down again. Because when you have this tiny little bit of energy and you're like desperate to spend time with people and do kind of social things, but it's super restricted having people that'll like go that extra mile for you, knowing that if things were reversed, you would do it for them is incredibly yeah. powerful. Um, it was incredible for my relationship with my brother We'd grown up as kids that were a little bit too close in age, and we had fought all through our childhoods, right? Super competitive, fought all the way growing up. And then he came back when I was really sick, and we suddenly realized that not only do we have all of this, um, like, past history, we moved lots, you know, our, our parents are interesting people, and we are probably the only two people in the world that kind of get one another and where we're coming from. But then he's also this like nature, fun, loving, really like off the cuff kind of guy. And he's like, you know, I would be so sick. And he's like, we should go for a hike. And I'm like, Victor, I can't hike. 
I can barely stand. And he's like, well, I've got this hundred liter backpack. I think you would fit in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you're the more type A and he's the more relaxed. You're, you're looking at an econ sort of degree. Is that kind of accurate? Well, I, he has a master's in medical physics, so you can't oh, exactly <laughs> call him laid back, right? <laughs> Nope, nope. I retract that statement. Okay. <laughs> so, right, we're just, we come out of an academic family, right? Like my dad's a physicist and really scientifically minded, which made all uh, of these kinds of things where like, like, he's a scientist, he believes in science and yet science isn't helping, right? Yeah, that's, well, you guys all kind of are, right? To a certain yeah. degree, that would yeah. be very tough. And mom's buying snake oil from every snake <laughs> and yet she found things that helped right and so it was this really interesting process where you know she would find certain things and they would help i had a massage therapist for a while that i think was keeping me out of the hospital at points he was incredibly good he was able to do stuff that for my body was the difference between um being like violently ill and being a little bit not okay um or like you know i use licorice oil a lot it is a godsend for me and yet i know people with crohn's for whom it does nothing and isn't helpful and part of the process for crohn's disease and figuring it out is really figuring out your relationship with food and so i came i spent years throwing up everything i ate and so then I had this really toxic relationship to food. And so even once like all the crazy steroids and all the crazy medications and, and you know, the disease is, is they, they stabilized, right? So you're like in this space where you can kind of get food down. I then hated food, right? So I could have very happily um, have starved to death, right? You should never want to eat again. And even now, like if I feel slightly nauseous, I would like to never eat again, right? Like that's where I go. And so they call it secondary anorexia, where you just have this really toxic relationship with food because it's made you so sick. And it's sort of the, the, the embodiment of everything that's wrong. And so in this process of trying to figure out what you can eat, it's also really easy to just be really crazy about it and try to not eat anything. And so you find people with these really restrictive diets and this sort of journey back to being like, I can eat food and it's not the thing that's going to kill me, right? Like usually the food that you're, that, that feels like it's making you sick is not the problem. And, and everybody with Crohn's disease have, has trigger foods, right? But I can eat greasy Chinese food and weed and red meat and like all these things that they say you're, I can have coffee, right? None of, none of the sort of the things that they think you can't eat or like the, but yet, you know, I can't eat soy or I, chocolate, right? I can't eat chocolate. Like there's these sort of, so I have a list, but it's my own list and I had to figure it out. And so figuring process, it out is just like process of elimination. A little bit, right? And, and I had this amazing nutritionist once who was telling me that you, you rule something out once it's made you sick seven times. And I'm like, seven Holy times? Cow. And she's like, yeah, it has to have made you sick seven times because your digestive system, if it's flared up, will throw up anything. So it doesn't matter what you put in it. It'll throw up anything. And often what you're throwing up is, is like from your triggered, like 24 to 48 hours earlier was the food that's caused the problem. And so you think it was your breakfast, but really it was breakfast or dinner like two days ago. That's the problem, not breakfast today. Holy cow. And so that process, like in that, that stuff to figure it out, it took a long, it was very, very valuable work. I now have my list. I don't need that, those things. And for the most part, I'm fine, right? For the most part, like I have to be a little bit careful with myself, but I also get warning signals, right? Like, look, today, I, if, I, if I was really tired or if my food's not sitting right, I know that I have to be a little bit more gentle with myself and I have to do a set of things to make me okay. Um, but that process has been really interesting. Is like now that we figured it out, right? Now that like I have learned to cook again. So I cook a lot from scratch um, because I trust food if I know what it all was before it became food, right? right. Um, if, I, if I know what it was, if I can identify it, if I know what's in it, then I know that it's safe. And there's lots of packaged things that I'm sure are safe for me to eat, but there's that trust factor. 
And for somebody that's been made so sick by food, that trust factor is a really, really big deal. So I don't worry so much about where my eggs are from, but I need to know that they're like eggs that were in a shell. If the eggs come in a carton, they terrify me. I can't eat those, right? They could be organic eggs in a carton, but somehow by removing it from the shell, you've removed all of my trust. I, I get it. You, I, and I get the secondary anorexia or at least the secondary, some sort of eating disorder. It's like an eating disorder through the back door kind of, because yeah. it's not like you started out emotionally wanting to lose weight. It, it's totally backwards, completely backwards. It, it's totally backwards. And it's really funny because like when I was in high school, my body did exactly what it wanted. I wanted it to do. I was not shaped by high school standards, but I did a lot of athletics and I could do all of these amazing things. And I played ice hockey and I did all this stuff and I loved it. And then I got really sick and I got really skinny and I'd run into people because I had moved back with my parents for a little bit, kind of in my old neighborhood where I'd gone to school and I'd run into people I'd gone to high school with. I'd be like, you look amazing. And I'm like, um... Like, who, who are you looking at? Because I look like I'm dying, right? Yeah. So, you know, like I'd moved from having this body that, you know, wasn't conventionally beautiful, right? I was strong and thick to being incredibly skinny with like dark eyes and looking very like skeletal heroin model-esque. And now all of these people are telling me I look amazing. How does that not screw with your mind? <laughs> well, it, in many ways, it kind of brings the blinders off a little bit, right? Because you're sitting there and you're like, they, they don't actually see me. They see the silhouette of who they think I am. Right. And they see the norm that society pushes on us so much. And you're, they, don't, they have no idea. And good God, I mean, who, you're feeling worse than you've ever felt in your whole life. So I wouldn't want to look like that at that price. <laughs> Not at all. And so it, it, right. some of those pieces have been really interesting. And it's actually given me a much better um, ability to be comfortable with my physical body image. Mm -hmm. So I am below my medical goal weight and above probably what society thinks I should weigh. <laughs> Isn't that the case for, I mean, right, exactly. <laughs> you want to shoot for, for the middle, right? <laughs> so, you know, if, if my doctors are happy, I would gain about five pounds, right? But, you know, right before Christmas, I had a little bout where I was slightly sick and so I wasn't eating that much and I lost about five pounds and people are telling me I look great. And so we still go through this all the time where like what's healthy for our bodies is not necessarily yeah. that kind of outward facing stuff. And so that journey has been actually, I think very empowering because it's deep. Like I am no longer self-conscious about what I look like. That's fantastic right? that you took that and made it empowering. It's like, it's just, it's this incredible space of being right. Like this is my body and it's going to do a bunch of stuff and it's going to look the way it is. And when I'm not feeling well, I, I swell in the middle. Right. And then I look quite heavy. And, uh, and it's this really interesting space of like, actually, this is my body telling me I need to like, you know, not be around the people that are going to judge me for looking like this. Holy cow. How bizarre. Right. What an interesting way, a barometer that you learned. It, it, it's been an interesting process and, you know, and like taking that, like, you know, I wanted to do economic stuff, but I don't know if I actually would have been happy there. I ran a magazine for a little bit. I did other stuff. And so when you come around and through some of the process, I kind of found conflict resolution as a field that I thought would be really interesting for me. And, and it's been the journey to there has been interesting because one of the things that I noticed early on in being really sick is that like I couldn't handle stuff unresolved because I had just so little energy and I was so not okay a lot of the time is that like if I had a fight with somebody it needed to be finished because if I let it like be gross and lingering and festering and it mattered to me then it made me more sick. So let me just jump back just a little bit. You, d you ended up going home. You did not finish your degree because you were in your last year. Yeah. You didn't finish your degree. You didn't, you didn't just take the checked boxes and pass the classes. Well, it, it took me about a year and a half to finish my kind of last piece. Okay. And I did, I did finish. Okay. Um, 
And, you know, I ended up with it. I basically took about a year and a half of medical leave. Okay. And then once I had some, it's amazing how hard it is to think when you're not eating. Right. Which is something that people don't actually realize. I like, I probably spent a year. I don't really have any good memories from a good chunk of it. I wasn't able to read even because I couldn't follow a storyline through a book um, because I just couldn't think clearly. And so once I was actually able to like take calories in and, you know, consume sugar so my brain could function again, things like uh, my brother uh, brought me home the first Harry Potter book. <laughs> and he was like, I think that this would be good for you to read because it's escapist and lovely. Yeah. And it was, it was lovely. It was a reintroduction to reading. That was, uh, that was perfect. I mean, I don't want to call it brainless because it's not, but you know, something where it's not an econ book that you're reading for a final. It's not something like that where you have to think in that way. It's more laid back and relaxed. Well, it's of. incredibly engaging. And there's this really interesting mm -hmm. thing that happens with, with sort of children's literature is that it, it's sort of one or two story arcs at a time. So you don't have to hold as many plot lines in your head. And I couldn't hold as many plot lines in my head. And it's given me this real actual love of children's literature. They don't spend all this time explaining how the world could possibly be this way. You're just kind of in it and it's lovely. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I do actually read now as part of like, just for escapist points, a lot of things that now I can then introduce to my kids because I've read them all. <laughs> right. With my kids, we like to read the book and see the movie. See? So, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what helped me with my love of reading ch more children's literature is that if we knew a movie was coming out on a book, we would all read it together. But anyway, that's totally that, that's, that's lovely. But that's another <laughs> lovely reading escape sort of thing. So right. so you did go back. You finished your econ degree. Yeah. Or your international microfinance. And I finished it and I haven't used it in any functional way in my okay. life since. So I, that's where I want to pick up. But, yeah. but finishing it was really important just because, well, I'm sure it has opened some doors. I still find like banking and finance stuff really interesting. Um, you know, I'm the CFO of my household. I find all of those things quite interesting. And a lot of that has allowed sort of the way I think about money to allow me to be safe in an entrepreneurial space where if my, my illness acts up, I might need three months off but I don't qualify for critical illness insurance. Right. Cause you have a whole different insurance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so in that, in that space, right. I mean, my medical stuff is taken care of if I get sick, but my lost revenue from my business would not be. Okay. And so that's scary. That, so that ability to really think about and plan around money and, and be comfortable talking dollars in our household, and like, what do we actually have to have put away? What are our core expenses? And a lot of those kind of finance pieces has given me a lot of freedom. So I am very minimalist and arguably very frugal. And part of that comes from an environmentalist kind of framework of thinking. But there's also a lot of freedom in the fact that like what we need to cover our monthly expenses, if stuff kind of goes sideways, it's actually very, very small. Yeah. Right. Like right. what we actually need is very, very small. What we have is often a lot more than that. And it's lovely and wonderful. Right. But, but what we need is very small. And in keeping those spaces is that I have a lot of ability to work, but there's no stress. Like if I bring in a new client this week, or if I don't, you know, book, like we have all of the, these kind of systems of savings set up so that the pressure's off. And in many ways, the pressure being off, I do more work than I expect to do. Right. And with, so with the Crohn's disease, with the conflict resolution, with all these pieces coming together, that, and minimalism, because we're minimalists also, and that's huge stress reduction in it's like amazing. a million ways that people, I, mm -hmm. because I went through it you don't even, it, you, it's so hard to even explain to people how much less stressful your life will be in ways like your email not having to be cleared out. I mean, like <laughs> and all of the little tweaks that you make in that minimalism. So you found ways to massively decrease your stress, which is conflict resolution within yourself or within your family. 
I don't think people it's, realize it's, that. It's all of those pieces, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like I negotiate with my kids every week. What of their things that they're doing are important and that they want me to show up for? Hmm. Right? Because I would kind of like to go to everything and they would kind of like me to go to everything and that doesn't work. Yeah. Right. But I can't tell from the outside what actually matters. So what are they nervous about? What matters for me to show up? I can't tell that in many other people's lives. And when I had all the energy in the world and I was in my twenties and I could do all the things I could show up for everybody in all the ways. Mm -hmm. That's not an option now. And I don't think it's an option for anybody who has like a family and works and has personal things that they are passionate about and all of those pieces anyways. But I learned that nice and early. Yes, you did in a very big way. So, right. So it's, it's a lot of those lessons have, have given me the space to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not volunteering on that project. I, I might coach my kids hockey teams, but I do not volunteer at the school pack. Or I may show up, like I might, I'm, I'm the president of a dance society, but I do not manage a lacrosse team. And so that like ability to say no in those spaces that I learned very early has been incredibly powerful in now being able to live a life that we really like. So when the kids come home and they're like, we want to do gymnastics. And I say, okay, instead of what? (laughs) (laughs) I adore you. (laughs) You know, like, like, sure. Instead of what? Right. I, you know, my one daughter currently is obsessed with sailing. She loves sailing. She's going to do two weeks of sailing camp in the summer. She's not going to do whatever her sister's going to do. Right. And that two weeks of sailing camp is going to be like the thing she does for the summer. That's her amazing piece. Right. Two weeks on the water. It'll be awesome. My other child could not care less. Right. They're not both going to do it because why would they both do it? They're not both passionate about sailing. So you learned very easily what and I want to jump back to the conflict resolution. You learn very easily how to determine, because it changes, what's important to you mm-hmm. and how to say no, which are two things people really, really battle with. And yeah. I love that because I learned that differently than you did. But like <laughs> we have kids that are all teenagers and then we have a seven-year gap and we have an eight-year-old. So there's like, mm. and her from the girls, from the sisters that she feels more in tune with, there's a 10-year gap. And so it's like having an only child in a huge family. Mm -hmm. And when we went to kindergarten, she's in second grade, we went to kindergarten, you know, Dane looks at me and all these parents with their first child who are like 25 or 26 and I am 44 or 45 at the time, you know, Mm because I was 39 when she was born. And he goes, oh, look, all your PTA friends knowing I am the last mom ever. (laughs) The oldest one's 26. I am never never have I been and never will I be the PTA mom. It makes me want to tear my hair out. But I knew that because I knew how to determine what was important to me and how to Mm -hmm. say no. And I went, yeah, these are all my new BFFs. They're almost the same age as my oldest daughter. Isn't that fun? (laughs) You know, but most people, so let's drag it back. You knew that in your life, unresolved conflict was a source of stress that made you sick, which we should all realize, but we don't. Instead, we just say we're busy, which is the, one of the words I hate the most in life. <laughs> you're, you're not busy. You're not deliberate with your time. You're not choosing what's important and saying no. So how did you choose that as a career path? Um, it's always been something I've loved, and I never thought I could make a living at it. Hmm. Right? And so that was... You know, I did a summer school when I was in university in Europe on peace and conflict resolution work. I started taking courses um, separate from university in conflict resolution work at a, at a school here that does just those kinds of things. And, and yet I kind of, so it was like a personal growth piece because I was like, this stuff is amazing, but I didn't see the career that could come out of it. And so I'm looking around and I'm like, well, you know, people say no one makes a living at this. 
and all of I was hearing that kind of language, right? And all of these people that were trying and, and not managing it. Then I was looking at the wider community and yet I'm seeing all of these people, like amazing women and that are like have these huge careers doing conflict resolution work. And I'm like, okay, so here's a disconnect. There are some people that are doing it and the majority of people aren't. And so then it reminded me of, you know, that, that time in my life when I thought I was going to be a writer or that time in my life when I thought, right? Like, so there's a lot of people that say this is really hard and they're not figuring it out, but there's a small set of people that are making it work. And so then I found this roster list um, for BC and it's all of the people that have, have some certain set of qualifications for, for mediation work in, in my province. And I literally went down the entire list and I called every single one of them. And I said, hey, I'm new to this field. Uh, what can you tell me, right? Like, like I'd, like, I'd like to figure out how to be on this roster. I'd like to do mediation work. How, how, did, you, how did you figure it out? And about half the people said, I haven't figured it out. I'm not making a living. This is ridiculous. Um, but the other half had really interesting stuff to say. They said things like, you have to figure out what your niche market is and who, who would care about what, what you have. Like, why, why are you the person they'd want to work with? I'm like, okay. You know, and then, you know, they said it takes a long time because this is a trust business. People have to really, really trust you before they'll invite you in to their most vulnerable spaces. Okay. So then I was like, well, maybe a three to five year timeline or something, right? So I'm looking, I was working in emergency services, doing dispatch for the fire department, working Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And my oldest daughter starts kindergarten. I'm like, I can't do this and ever see my kids again, right? And so I was like, well, maybe now between my oldest daughter starting kindergarten, my youngest daughter starting kindergarten is the time to save up even more money than our classic emergency fund and figure it out right? Like that kind of space of, you know, let's, let's do this shift into figuring out how to do this work. And, uh, and what I found was like giving myself this kind of long runway. I'm like, I don't actually need income from this for a little while. And I can build these relationships and build this trust and figure out where people are actually interested in the work I do. Um, it was, it showed up very quickly, actually. Um, and much more quickly than I needed it to, but the pressure being off, I mean, you can't sell somebody mediation services. You can't look at them and be like, oh, your conflict looks really terrible. I'm a neutral. Come on into my office and we'll fix this for you. Like that is never going to work, right? Like that's not a, like nobody will ever be there. People will be like, I need help, help me. And you never know when they'll show up, right? And so it's a very... It, and, and the salesy stuff, people actually find really, really scary in this field. It would be like a counselor selling you their counseling services. Mm -hmm. Like the hard sale on counseling is something that I think like anybody would be super freaked out by and probably should be, right? That's not somebody that you trust has your best interest at heart. It's not like a one transaction and you're walking away. And, and so, yeah, it, it's, been an, it's been an interesting journey to getting to the conflict resolution piece. And, uh, and one of the things that I've found is that now that I have more of the skills and then I'm, I apply them back into my life, it kind of comes around again in these beautiful circles, right? So it's like, I, you know, took a lot of these skills and then you go back and then you have this conversation with your dad about, you know, maybe how your relationship maybe should be versus how it is, right? Like, there's a set of things they do that aren't okay. You make peace with who they are and then you, you know, mediate the relationship in between. And suddenly I go from having this like really awkward relationship where like, I know he cares about me, but it's like weird to a super positive relationship that we both, I mean, I went from having this super awkward, I didn't know how to be in relationship with my dad to he's somebody I talk to at least once or twice a week. And we go out for lunch and we have coffee on a regular basis. And I'm, I'm quite involved in his, his life now. And, and so those, so I've, I've gone from like, it's awkward and he wants to help and he doesn't know how to a relationship where if I need help, he would be there. And I would know how to ask for it. And I know what he would like to give. Wow. So 
how did you, how did the niche happen for you? Because you didn't really have to choose it and narrow it down. It sort of organically happened for you. Is that correct? Um, a few things kind of happened. I mean, the first is that I sort of looked at the stuff that I was kind of missing, right? So when I was younger, I was relatively geeky. I like tech stuff. And I had moved away from working in tech things. And then I'm watching all of these tech companies blow themselves up, right? And you're sitting there and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why would two founders have forgotten to have the two or three conversations they need to have to be a company? Like, how, how is this not working? And talking to people who are in those companies or in these kind of, in like boardrooms, like being like, I can't figure out how to make this work. And so some of it came very organically from things that I know I love and going, going to those places and seeing some of those people and getting back in touch with the things that I missed, right? Or the kind of the pieces where when you're sort of, when you look wistfully back at your life and you're like, you know, there's something there, right? You're not wistful about stuff. And you don't miss things unless there's a piece there that you really wish you had still today. Yeah. And often it's not the thing, right? So, you know, I don't miss maybe the hanging out with my brother in a basement playing Super Mario Kart is not necessarily about the video game specifically or the basement, right? We can let those <laughs> things go. But, you know, there was something about that interaction that was super positive and there was something about the tech I found really interesting. Or, right, like, so there's certain, there's certain video games, there's certain tech things where I, I find them really fascinating and I like to kind of get in to the weeds a little bit on, on different things. And so then when you're talking to people and you have that interest and they kind of get that you, you understand, then when the problems surface, because there's always problems, then you're a person they can talk to about them because you get enough of the stuff, right? Right. Like I understand some of the weird dynamics that happen between coders and sales guys. Which is odd, but that's, you found that. That's great. So you looked back at your life at the things that you were wistful about and you added them back in. Mm-hmm. And then, so then what, what other things happened that built this um, coaching business for conflict resolution? Um, a few kind of key things that have been incredibly valuable. One is that I found mentors in my community. Yeah. Right. So um, there's sort of, there's sort of two or three people that have just been incredibly valuable. Um, and at the same time, my mom transitioned from being an executive at uh, academic to being a coach in her retirement. And so watching her start to do coaching work also turned on some light bulbs. Where you're sitting there and you're like, you know what, this is actually a really valuable way of working with people. Yeah. And this, this coaching space can be incredibly, incredibly powerful for people. And so both of those things happening at the same time. So I have two mentors uh, that I think about a lot. One is Tammy Linsky, and she does just a ton of really good conflict resolution work. She has a fabulous little bites podcast that's like, you know, mm -hmm. six or seven minutes and talks about like reframing things, right? Like, you know, somebody says something and, and how do you think about that? And she's been an amazing person to talk to about this journey of building a business. And then, you know, somebody else that's more local, um, Sharon Sutherland, who doesn't do a lot of online stuff, but the work that she does is just incredible and just the way she works in a room. And so getting to, to see her actually do some of the hands-on mediation work itself has been just incredibly valuable, how, how she structures and runs her business. And to have people invite you in to kind of let them see inside their business a little bit and how they run things really gives you a lot of ideas of, okay, so here are ways people can do things and they work. And so then you can kind of pick and choose the pieces that it worked for you. I love that. And I think sometimes people are, I don't think that they would use the word threatened, but by someone else's success in a similar field or in a similar, uh, like if I'm a coach and you're a coach, we can be coaches together and not be threatened by each other. <laughs> we can instead see each other as resources. I think sometimes people don't look at the mentors or the people around them 
as potential resources, I always think that where I don't understand or know something or someone else is really good and I'm not yet, that's a resource for me. That's not a threat at all. Yeah, I also think that in our slightly more niche field, so conflict resolution is kind of sidelined, like especially in sort of the Western world where people are more likely to end up in court or yeah. have relationships dissolve than do really good conflict resolution work. It's not the most mainstream field. Right. And so if you have had a good experience with another person in the conflict resolution field, you are more likely to be my client than if you've had a bad experience in the conflict resolution field. So if you went to a mediation and it was terrible, next time you're probably going to go to court. You're not going to go to a mediation. And then my entire field loses. And so like if somebody goes to a coach and their experience with the coach is negative, Uh and is sort of toxic or destructive or just expensive with no value, then they're not gonna go to another coach. They're gonna decide coaching is a sham. And so it's really, really important for us in the field, like in any field where we believe in the values of the field as a whole to support people in the field to do good work. It is important to me that other people doing conflict resolution work do good work. Right. It is important to me that I support new people to do good work because the better work they do, the more likely my field is to grow. And given the powerful transformations we can make in people's lives, mm-hmm. I think that th- that that itself is just incredibly valuable. That space where like if a family, now I don't do family work, but if a family goes through mediation and conflict resolution instead of through court. The chance is at the end of that process that their kids have co-parents instead of two people that are like unable to talk and hate one another so much higher. And the process of the mediation and the conflict resolution work, even with a divorce that's like really, really hard, has started them having the kind of conversations they will need to have to successfully raise their child together. And it's incredibly transformative. And even if it's hard, and even if it doesn't feel great at the end, it's the beginning of a process that's much healthier for the majority of people than that incredibly adversarial space. And we even see that with businesses. Like I've worked with a couple of co-founder groups where the decision at the end was to dissolve the partnership. Uh But they're dissolving the partnership in a way that they still like one another. And they might recommend in the future that somebody that comes up with a business idea that's not for them maybe goes and works with that other person or they're rooting for them when they start their next venture. And that is a very, very different place than having gone through a court process. Right. And even like, if we think about like at work, right, if you're at work and you're having like these kind of ugly interactions with your coworkers, you don't want to be there you're looking for a a new place to go to work, right? You're not thinking of showing up there. And that's a very different place than a workplace that had some kind of ugly thing happen. And then we figured it out and we scrubbed off all the gross parts. We had that conversation about what is this nasty mess? And now we were okay. And we figured out a way to move forward positively. And now we have a workplace where like some stuff happened and now we're stronger. And we're better. And it's a better place to show up to work than it was before whatever the problem was. Anyone who's ever been in a relationship, court or divorce or otherwise, knows that difficult stuff happens. And when you do work through it and get to the other side, that relationship, in a positive way, that relationship is so much deeper and fulfilling on the other side of the conflict, I don't want the conflict. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> you know, but the fact that it will probably happen, a marriage yeah. is the easiest way to describe it, to, to relate to that, right? Yeah. You're, you're going to not get along and you can end it. And, th- and that happens sometimes and sometimes 
like you said, partnerships, it's not, it's not necessarily unavoidable, but you can definitely come out of it. And you're right. I mean, I've, I have been through mediation and it isn't about it going your way because Mm -hmm. court and mediation, I don't feel like I like it because it goes my way. I like it because it was fair and everyone was heard and the outcome was positive and you're moving forward. That's what I like, regardless of whether it's court or mediation, but court is so much more scary. Well, court's also very linear. Yeah. Court gives you a space where, you know, a judge is ruling maybe about a monetary amount and the judge can rule between zero and the full amount and that's their line to decide on. They don't get to decide timelines. They don't get to decide payment plans. They don't get to decide workarounds. They can't do trades. They can't do barters. They can't, like, they don't get to do any of that other stuff. And so if you want to come up with, like, something that's actually interesting, right, the court doesn't have that kind of jurisdiction. So, you know, the court can't decide that, you know, maybe instead of selling the house and splitting the money, you're going to do some you know, strange other thing. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a thing that you hear in, um, in family stuff that people are starting to think about doing where actually the kids get the home. Okay. So the parents have split parenting time, but you know, say mom gets a week, dad gets a week, but the kids are in the house. Mom and dad have separate places. Mom lives at the house with the kids for a week. And then dad lives at the house with the kids for a week. Kids don't move. Wow. That's not a solution that comes out of a court. That's a solution about parents sitting down and being like, you know what? The hardest thing for us looking at this is disruption, right? Yeah. Or you look at a business where um, one person wants out and one person wants to stay. And so somebody's pushing to sell it and somebody's pushing to not sell it. And they're just arguing and arguing and arguing and really what they need is to talk about how one partner buys the other partner out. But they've come up with this other solution. And if they go to court, they're going to get that other solution in as a yes or a no, instead of, you know, maybe, maybe there's something down here. That's what we really need. That's slightly different. And often there is another way of creating a solution. Um, And even if, you end up on that, you know, zero to a million dollar line that a judge would have created. There's something incredibly powerful about buying into the solution and deciding that that's what we're going to do. So deciding that you, you know, you're willing to pay this much for this much of the business and your, your partner deserves this kind of a buyout leaves you in a very, very different place than a judge telling you that's what you're going to do. I totally agree. I mean, I could not agree with you more strongly that because it feels fair and it feels like your voice is heard. Yeah. Yeah. The voice being heard is incredibly powerful. And then for actually doing an agreement in the end, because none of these conflict resolution processes mandate you to do whatever the thing is that comes out of it you have to you have to agree right and and that like if i say yes to something i will do it right you're way more likely to actually figure out ways to follow through than to figure out ways to kind of torpedo whatever the plan was if you're in there and for anything where the relationships matter you want to stay in the community so if i owned a small business in the community right and, you know, say, say you and your business partner are both members of the same church mm-hmm. or your kids play a sport together or you go to the same school or you live on the same block or you're in some kind of community together. The conflict in the business can spill over in a way that suddenly someone is unwelcome in the community. And that's incredibly damaging. And it's not just damaging for your relationship with that person, but your whole community suffers in a way that they wouldn't if they can both have you still there. And you see that in businesses where like people manage to leave with grace and dignity, (laughs) right? A lot of those kind of processes where somebody can be like, oh, I was the CEO. I am no longer appropriate to be the CEO and I'm going to step away in a way that 
is better for the company and better for me, it's really hard to make those decisions when you're in conflict and in, mm-hmm. in the hard place. And often those things come up because of a crisis. Yeah. Something has happened and it's sort of all pushed to the fore. And people have a lot of trouble thinking in that space. And it's just incredibly beautiful when you can have people make the sorts of decisions that they look back at and are proud of. Mm-hmm. Right? When you help them behave in ways that preserve their personal integrity. Yeah, that's huge. You, your niche, so is predominantly companies. And is it predominantly tech companies? Um, the vast majority of people I work with are small business, entrepreneur, startup, and tech space. Um, I rarely ever turn people away um, because generally, if I don't think that I'm the right person to work on a conflict with somebody, I know someone who is. Because this community is very small and we refer back and forth a lot. So if somebody came to me and they said, hey, I need a family mediator. Well, I don't do family mediation, but I know three or four very amazing people that would be happy to work with that family. And so the, it's, I think it's more important that people get connected to somebody mm-hmm. that is really valuable to do the kind of conflict resolution work they need. I mean, it may be that what somebody needs is an in-person mediation and the timing that they need and where they are in the world means I'm not the right person to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. But I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly well-connected community. And so there may be somebody in Southern California, or there may be somebody in Vermont, or there may be somebody that I know that would be an incredibly good person for them to work with. And, and I think that those kind of connections are so valuable that we make those referrals all the time. So it doesn't matter if somebody's reaching out to me and they're in my niche or not, because I'm happy to connect them with the person that they should be talking to anyways. That's excellent. Now, the Crohn's disease, it is an autoimmune disorder. Yes. And you did your big list of, I mean, it was a slap in the face that tra- changed your, altered your trajectory, basically. Yes. So with the autoimmune, and I know I'm completely changing gears here, are there any other health issues that you have, or is it just a matter of what's important, saying no, managing yourself and your family in a way that's maybe a little bit uh, more streamlined than other people. Do you have any other residual side effects from an autoimmune disorder? Um, Well, I, my energy levels are much more variable than Mm. probably what is standard. Um, And then, you know, sometimes I will have a week where I can't keep food down. Okay. And so I do have definite impacts, right? So things do happen. And so I have to, schedule my life in a way that if I miss a week, I miss a week, right? Um, And the people that I work with on things know that I like to run things ahead of time Mm -hmm. so that, you know, like I like our podcast to be ahead. I like, I like things to be ahead so that if I need, like, so I'm doing a a presentation tomorrow um, and everything has been prepared for it. If I need to sleep all day tomorrow before that presentation, there is the space for it. It's the one thing that I have to do tomorrow. Um, It's two hours. I can do that no matter what. Now, chances are I will get a ton of other things done in that day, but I don't have to. So there's that valuable balancing of what do you have to do to make it through the stuff? And what have you prepared ahead of time so that if something goes off the rails, you're good to go. Um, The thing with an autoimmune disorder like Crohn's is that often you can't really tell when things are a little bit not okay. Mm -hmm. So a little bit not okay is usually like minor bleeding in the intestine. You would never know. Nobody ever knows. But you get really anemic, you get really tired. Um, And so a lot of the things sit in that kind of space where like I'll start to know because your energy levels will drop. But it's amazing how much you can do without really noticing how sick you are or like how close to the rails you're running. So like I will be exhausted at the end of the day. And, and sometimes I have to check in and I'm like, am I exhausted because today was crazy or am I exhausted because something else is going on in my system? And sometimes there's that checklisting, right? Like, Oh no, I'm exhausted because I 
coached a hockey practice and I went for a 45 minute run with the dog. And then I did these three things. And then I worked for four hours straight. And then I picked the kids up from school. And then we did, you know, three hours of dance practice. And then I had a meeting and now it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm going to sit down with my partner for a glass of wine. And, and I'm like, I'm exhausted. And he's like, of course you're exhausted. You, this was what your day looked like. And then there's other days where you're like it's the same feeling, but you didn't do anything. And that calibrating is hard to do without that external sounding board. So he's amazing. He's my like, I'm like, is this legitimately what's going on? And that like external check, because sometimes our heads are mm-hmm. not as reliable as we would like them to be. Amen to that. <laughs> but I love, and I'm sure you use in your conflict resolution, the fact that, I mean, you plan ahead probably more, much more than the normal person. And you give yes. yourself that space. This You have this buffer constantly that we don't mm-hmm. give. And I wonder if people just did a little bit more of that, <laughs> how much <laughs> less stress and more energy well, they'd have. There's these things that are incredibly valuable. So I know a lot of people that don't like to go out to eat on a regular basis because it throws their diet off, right? They go out, they eat something, they're uncomfortable, right? Well, I can't do that because I can't walk into a restaurant and look at a menu and know what's safe to eat. Right. So if I know we're going to a restaurant... The day before, like two o'clock in the afternoon, when it's their quiet time, I call them and I'm like, hey, I need to talk to the kitchen because I need to know what on your menu is safe for me to eat because I'm coming in tomorrow. Right. And so I don't show up not knowing what I can eat. And then I've made my choice before I even show up. So I'm not looking at the menu. I'm starving thinking I would love to eat like three pounds of chicken wings and some cheese toast. (laughs) because <laughs> everybody would love that and right, that's not right, good for right. anybody yeah, right? I know. <laughs> you know I'm showing up and I'm thinking here's the two or three things that I know are safe and are good for me and then right. that that's my list to pick from and so I've pre-made the choice and so I'm not making the choice when I'm hungry when I'm stressed at the end of a long day I'm making the choice the day before when I have lots of energy that would shift people's lives so much for the better to think <laughs> to think just a little bit ahead and a little bit more about yourself. I mean, I don't think self-care is something that women, especially moms who are working, you know, we don't, we don't, self-care is not a coupon book on Mother's Day. It, it's, <laughs> it's a thing that you should be doing on a regular. <laughs> Every time I, I get one, I don't I'm like, the, not self-care. This does not count. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have the choice about self-care. And so right. that's something that's been really interesting is that I don't have the choice, but then I also don't get burned out. Right? So because you could not take as good care of yourself and you would have repercussions that are I, worse. I would, have, I would have the three weeks of in the hospital vacation. Yeah. <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of the like, we're going to go to the beach for a couple of weeks, right? Like it's <laughs> Yeah. But maybe we should be a little bit. Now, I was just going to say mindful, which that's, that's a nice segue. If we were a little more mindful about ourselves and mm-hmm. what our needs were and our self-care and just taking a step back and planning a little bit more in advance, if we were just a little bit more mindful, that would make a huge difference in our lives. And the name of your company is Mindful Resolution. But that yeah. was not intentional, I swear to you. <laughs> um, so... I love how much it changed, but you still, you're very passionate, more passionate about what you're doing because of your experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very much so. And, and I think that the, the kind of the mindful resolution piece kind of comes to me from a couple of places is one is really wanting us to be intentional in yeah. how we create agreements with other people, right? So Do we negotiate with our family what the summer is going to look like so that everybody comes out of it having really good pieces? Do we negotiate with our business partners or even with our clients, Mm -hmm. like what that relationship looks like in a way so that everybody walks away really satisfied, feeling like, you know, it's time well spent. I mean, I did a, we made a card game with some people that I work with. It was a fun little lark. And at the very beginning, people are like, what do you expect out of this? And we're like, we expect to make something that's kind of fun and have an adventure. And nobody's expecting it to blow up into this big, huge piece. But because we'd had those conversations early on, we're kind of, we're all pulling together in the same direction. 
And a lot of those things are really powerful. I'm, you know, I'm, I co-host a podcast and, you know, the, the first couple of conversations, like those really intentional, like, what do, what do we need to get out of this for this to be a success? Yeah. Right. How are we going to know if it's not working? Yeah, that's right? huge. At what point, like what, what kind of things would make us pull the plug on this venture? And people don't tend to have those kinds of conversations when they're so excited about this thing. Like, oh, we're going to do a podcast. It's going to be amazing. Right. And it is, it's amazing. Um, but how will we know we're not okay? Right. How will we know we're not sharing the load properly? Because, you know, my co-host partner does all of the editing. That is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. How does he feel about the amount of weight I'm pulling? Right. How do we share that? How do we make sure we're both okay? What happens? I love it. I would, you know, all of those kinds of questions. And so just being really intentional with how we make agreements, noticing that like something was awkward. <laughs> do we need to address it? Figuring out how to say something about it. All of those kinds of pieces. It's like that. Like if I know I need to have a conversation with somebody, have I played it out in my head in a kind of way where I've asked, so like I need to tell my partner that where his tools are being stored right now isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. How can I tell him in a way that isn't get your effing shit off of the lawn, right? Right. Like, that's not useful. Now we're in a fight, right? How how do we tell them in a way that they can hear us? I read an article and I don't know how true it is, but it doesn't matter that that part doesn't matter. It was about <laughs> prenup, prenuptial agreements. Mm-hmm. So when we do a prenup, it's, we think finances. Yeah. You and I are getting married and you have a business and if things dissolve, we don't want to talk about that things might go south, but if they do, mm-hmm. and it seems very cynical and ominous and I'm the one that's like, you should have a will, you should have a trust, you should, you, you plan all of your things for the worst case scenario and then you're, you don't have to worry about those things. I love it's that. all set. Right. And I love that. But this prenup article was about how famous couples had a prenup that had nothing to do with money. Mm-hmm. Like Bill Gates, no technology is allowed at the house. Once you get home from work and you're here, you're only allowed to work this many hours. My expectation is that we go on a date once a week. And I think it's interesting, and I, I go back to more marriage-type relationships because I think that's the easiest or most common default, but partnerships in business is the same way. What are your expectations in this relationship? And we're so excited about the relationship or the business or the podcast or the marriage or whatever it is that you may see those warning signs or you may feel that discomfort or you may want to yell to get your shit off the lawn. And we don't, and we don't discuss expectations because God forbid our expectations would not be what the other person's is, but wouldn't that be better to know? Well, often people don't discuss their most important pieces because they like the other person. The other person is similar to them and they just mm-hmm. kind of assume that they want what they want. So right. I really like this person, therefore he must also want to have children or not want to have children. Right. How many people are in a marriage for like three years when they figure out they have different opinions about having kids? Which is huge. I mean, that's huge, right? Well, it's also, it's a deal breaker. It's a deal, right. Like, why would you be married before you know about the deal breakers? And we don't. Like that, that's the piece that's amazing to me. It's like, if one of you is set on having a family with four kids and one of you wants none, your future is not together, no matter how lovely you seem together. (laughs) Right. I want to 10 X a business and sell it to Google. And you want to do like a boutique coding firm. No matter how amazing we are working on this project, Our future is not together. And that's okay. And I'm not (laughs) sure why people aren't okay with the fact that it's okay. But I love that. Often we're afraid of having those conversations because they make us take steps that are slightly hard. Mm -hmm. But they're way less hard in the beginning. So if we figure out that our future is not together and we need to part ways to be okay in our lives, we have a moment of pain now. Mm Mm-hmm. But it saves us a humongous amount of pain in the future. 
Yeah. And there's this really, but it's really difficult for right now self to be like, I'm going to take this pain on right now to save future self this huge headache. Or maybe he'll change his mind. (laughs) That's the worst. And and often, if things are, as long as things are unconfirmed, you can pretend they're what -hmm. you want them to be. Or often, we don't even see them. Yeah. So we just, if somebody, and the more similar somebody is to being like you, the less like you are to have these conversations. So mm-hmm. if you have similar education backgrounds, you come from similar places, you are much more likely to assume people want what you want. So if you went to school together, mm-hmm. if you are the same nationality or the same religious background, you kind of tend to think that they'll have the same sort of core values that you have and sort of dreams and aspirations that you have. And so often you kind of forget to have those conversations because you just project your own onto them. Exactly. And isn't that easy? And wouldn't it be nice if we'd all conform, but that's where you come in. (laughs) Life doesn't conform. (laughs) So Amanda, wrapping up, what's Mm -hmm. the easiest way for people to find you? I am at Mindful Conrad's. Um, on Twitter, I, you can find me by my name. If you, uh, can't remember how to spell semen off, it starts with semen. And it ends with off. <laughs> and it ends with off. Um, and, and I am one of very few seminoffs in the world, so I'm not that hard to find. My website is mindfulresolution.ca. And, and uh, yeah, reach out. I love chatting with people, as you can probably tell. I love this. This was so fun. It was nice to go in blind and and uh, just go from there. Also, I know because you had, um, you have, you will always have Crohn's disease. That's something I'm sure if people want to reach out to you. I know the journey is mm-hmm. different for everyone, but I'm sure the discussion is very beneficial to someone struggling. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting places. So um, Invisible Not Broken is a fabulous podcast by a woman from Berkeley, California, and a guy who I didn't actually chat with him when I talked about their podcast. And they talk about like the process of like living with chronic illness and and then like the variety of physical experience is huge, mm-hmm. but the mental, emotional coping stuff we can all share. Right. Thank you so much for sharing with me today. It's been really great. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon. Hello, my name is Warrior Princess. Or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.